And now, the Rathband Tapes. Episode 6. Two twins, one story. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband Tapes. A series of conversations never before heard. Recorded during the writing of Tango 190, the late PC David Rathband's memoir. My name is Tony Horn. I'm in Lancashire, England. In South Australia is David's twin, Darren. So, who came first? Yeah, David came first. One and a half minute difference between the two of us. In Groundslow, Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire. It sounds the Ritz. <laughs> Do you know what? It was, a, it was a, the infamous maternity hospital. If you had that on your birth certificate, you were, you were, you'd made it. <laughs> and when was this? 1968, 20th of January, 1968. When it's the 20th of January... In today's world, what what do you think? Oh, I try not to think, Tony. I um, I was never I was never a big one for celebrating birthdays. I don't know why. I don't think our David was, but, it, but the build up to them is certainly something I don't look forward to. Um, I tend to go into hibernation, um, and I wait for the day to come. I, I always say, I always say happy birthday to him and look up, and that's all I do and then wait for the clock to tick over and get into the next day. What does the Rathbaum family look like in, in those early years? Oh, we, do you know what? We, I had a really, I, I was thinking about this the other day, about our childhood and growing up, and unfortunately when a tragic incident happens in your family, it can do one or two things. It tends to bring you closer and then, Sometimes that closeness can be impacted by a breakdown. And our family's no different to anybody else after this. And, and, and the death of my niece, Naomi, our family have struggled with how tight we were when we were growing up. But I had three lovely sisters, a mum and dad, obviously my big brother. And I've got real fond memories of growing up with a real safe and secure, fun, disciplined home let's just share the the names of those people that you mentioned oh well i've got my dad keith uh, my mom marilyn my sister eldest was julie second was debbie and my third sister the, the baby sister was carrie so what's your first memory first memory probably around about eight, maybe seven, eight years of age. Uh, and what you got to remember is now I'm now 55. So that's, I'm doing well to remember that far back. I think that was one of the Christmases we both had the same sort of bike. One had a green one, one had a red one. And what you got to remember, Tony, is when we were born, twins was, they were, they were a special type of baby. If you had twins, everybody had to know you were a twin. 
So we got dressed the same. We looked the same, obviously, but we had to wear the same shit clothes up until I think my mom would have, or my, I think it was probably my sisters. They would have had us doing it until we were about 30. Um, but we, thankfully, we got into our, probably not our teens, and we said enough was enough. I'm hearing this for the second time. Obviously, David told me a lot of this when we did the book, but I don't remember much of it, and I've not looked any of it up deliberately. It's such a world away. And also, and this is one of the great conundrums of life, you do look back at, the years of growing up, whether they were happy or sad. And you do think they were a better time. I often think I wouldn't want to be growing up now. But of course, if you are growing up now, you'll probably, like an old man in 50 years' time, reflect as we just have. Everything moves on, doesn't it? And everything moves on at a pace. Yeah, and what were the- it's, it's subjective to the, where you are and when, when you are. Nostalgia is like a uh, one of your favourite mints, isn't it? It's it's nice. <laughs> it's nice tasting that same mint. That's why you always buy them. So n- nostalgia for us. And you know what? It takes away all that hurt and pain from what eventuated later on in our lives. Simpler times, definitely. I mean, the things that we looked forward to against things that people place value on now and obvious reference there social media but looking forward to fa cup final day and you know tv cameras firstly covering the game but in the hotel on the coach a question of sport special one family holiday abroad if you're lucky a year Christmas was magic and saved up for getting a bike was a beautiful moment. Oh, that was probably the best. Do you know what? That's probably the last, last or best Christmas we can remember. And both, both me and our David, we actually crashed on those bikes. David went through one of the neighbor's windows and decided that, well, the bike went through the window first, and I think he followed it Followed it after he'd smashed it, and that was my auntie Anne's house. And um, we learnt very quickly that um, if, if you were going to get into trouble, make sure you had a, a decent backstory to get a bit of sympathy before you got a smack around the back of the head. So that we, we, we drove head on to each other with those bikes. But, yeah, it was. A, a bike for Christmas it was really really significant and what you got to remember is your mum and dad my mum and dad worked every hour they could to make sure that we were fed warm ready for school although school was sometimes difficult but what we also had was my little nan who was the backbone of our family she made our family unit complete she would come with a little dog pip and cook cook some uh, sorry cook dinner for my dad when he got in from work so my mum was Obviously not running around after she got into work. Tony, it was really, really good. And me and our David took full advantage of being a, being twins. Wow, there's quite a lot there which you might not even realise. 
the first thing that occurs to me is how glowingly you talk of family. Now, I came from a, a broken home, but today's reality is that marriages break, people are displaced often. Not many people I know are from anywhere in particular. They've moved for work, for love, for freedom, for opportunity. But we did grow up with a concept of what, what family was. The second thing that occurs to me as you say that is, were you two in competition or locked as one? I think as we got older... I think there was a competitive streak. And I've always said David was more competitive towards me than I was to him. I've always looked up to David as my big brother. I looked at what he had. He got a job with my dad. My dad trained him to be a, a plumber. I was disappointed. I had to go with the electricians. Didn't stick that out too long. And always regretted not working for my dad. And then David would look at my life and wanted what I wanted. That was the ongoing dispute i think with david and that that transgressed all the way up until going in the police force which he never let me live down yeah he did say to me that he thought that you land always landed on your feet and he had to work twice as hard yeah you know what this is the man who lands on his feet all the time it went to went to central america with the army and then he ended up losing one of his legs <laughs> so i i do land land but i don't always land on my two feet so it's unfortunate that he thought that because there was there was never any of that in my my mind. David was David was my big brother. If he if he thought that, then in fact we had a we had that conversation here. I just, I said to him then there was no need for it. I always I always wanted what you had. You were always my big brother, and I was looked up to. Even at forty years of age, but there you go. You live and learn. I don't know the Central America stuff. Well, I was I was in a in the HM forces as a trooper as a tank driver and ended up doing uh, taking a boat out on a Land Rover in Belize and um, it was a faulty Land Rover boat was too big flicked me over and trapped me underneath and two burly reamy blokes dragged me out from a Land Rover that was tipping petrol over and just about to burst into flames so yeah when. Um, when I came back, I was flown back from Central America to Woolwich, the military hospital. David, David came down. One, I was in there for a while actually, because, like I say, I nearly lost the, the, the lower part of my left leg. Numerous operations, etc. He brought one of his he brought his current girlfriend down with him. <laughs> she decided that she didn't want to be his girlfriend anymore. She wanted to be my girlfriend. So they left, and she stayed. She stayed visiting me. Uh, and said, will you, will you go out with me? So we swapped girlfriends on that occasion as well. On that occasion yeah, we, as we well? Had, we, we, we had a few. <laughs> we had a few girlfriends that would uh, certainly <laughs> get told that they were David or Darren, and I'd get David to meet one of my girlfriends. He, he'd get me to meet one of mine. Loads of times. Did you look identical i think yeah there were stages where it we we look we certainly at stages looked identical and then there was occasions where you could possibly tell the difference now if it, like if you grew up with us there was people that wouldn't know what who they were talking to 
So we, we were assigned the name 20. So, and it wouldn't be 21, 22. It'd just be 20 because nobody knew who they were talking to. The terrible Yeah, things. that was assigned by probably the constabulary of the area or the adult parents. Wherever trouble was, our names was usually assigned to it, even if we weren't out of the house. Did you play up at school? Um, schooling wasn't the best part of my life, purely because... I think at school you, you're asked to work out what you want to be and I, I had no idea what I want to be. Even at, how old am I now? 55, I still don't know what I, I want to be. I've just spent 30 years being a cop, which I've walked away from. So and they put all this pressure on at school and then you've got pressure from your mates and then you've got the people that chase you around and want to beat you up. School's not going to be a pretty shit place to be in. I never scarved off. Never scarved off a day. Always went. David did. He got caught the first day he did it. What age did you leave school? Um, we left just after our CSEs at the time. We weren't smart enough for O-levels. We left. Dad had already got David a, uh, an apprenticeship. so And I'd got an apprenticeship with some electrician, Russell contractors from Solial. So we didn't really have to stay long. We first opportunity, I think 16 and a half. We were out. I had a good childhood. I didn't have a, you know, I didn't have, I wasn't, um, I didn't have a bad childhood. But then I look back at the things I didn't have. Uh, you know, I still kiss my son goodnight every night, and he's nearly nineteen. You know, well, my my father. I can't remember that. My father has never told me that he loves me. Is that true? Yeah. Look, I think that's a trait that that runs quite deep in our family. My nan, my mother's mother and father were the same. Um, we used to visit them and we were told to go and sit in the dining room because if we made a noise, he wouldn't be too impressed. The only person that broke that trait was my little nan, my dad's mum, and she, she had love oozing out of her. She was just a beautiful, beautiful lady. And she died when I was in the army, unfortunately. But yeah, I, 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 dad told me once that he loved me and that's when I was going through a, a pretty dark time. He told me he loved me. Mom, I probably can't remember if that's ever happened. Well, it's interesting because we don't really know what they think about events. When I say we, I remove myself from the situation. We, the public, I don't know obviously it's an appalling consideration one thing that people you know will will say is that you shouldn't have to bury your own child um i've heard that said many times across you know a variety of circumstances but i don't know what your mum and dad i think look think. tony i think They've, they're, they're, they've dealt or de dealing with grief. They've lost a son. And like I said to you, it either makes a family come closer or it breaks a family apart. And I think there's a cycle of grief, isn't there? If you lose a loved one, a child, they say after about 10 years, if you've stuck together, that's probably the time you're going to separate because it has a massive effect on who you are. You, you become something completely different. I'm no longer who I was when David... On the 3rd of July, I'm completely different. My mental health, my my opinions, 
my tolerance, my ability to deal with things. I'm, I, I struggle on a daily basis, like like other people, like mum and dad would do, like my sisters do, like Kath does, like the kids do. Uh, but you know what? That grief is completely different to everybody. Everybody's level of grief has a different different intensity due to their relationship with the person who's passed. That's really interesting, you giving the before and after there, because souls on the line, I'm finding uh, these sessions with you exhausting, draining. And I also think that if you talk about the person that you were maybe on the 3rd of July, I reckon there's a point in the last decade when you realise that you have changed and it's not immediate. So for me, if I were asked the question, and hey, I have the ability to ask myself it here. If I were to ask myself the question, has this had any effect on, on me? I would say I realised in about... 2016 and you know I've never told anybody this I don't think but when the result of the the result when the verdict of the inquest came in I was asked to do a, about three minutes on the radio about it and the next day I sat there for 12 hours and I listened back to the interview talking along to it and I, I see that as my moment where I realized that there was damage and I've only joined this story from the 4th of July so many people have been damaged and, and damage is right because we you the families of Peter Bowman Chris Brown Samantha our family and, and wider afield We'll never be the same. We'll never be the same. The people that subjected to the armed robberies by Ness during this rampage while they're out shopping for a TV in the chip shop. The old lady that calls it in saying, I've just seen the, the bloke you're after. Their, their lives will, will forever have a piece of this story. And the, for me, the important, the important thing is, is to make sure that story is true it's got to be the true story and the sad thing is that roll moat's face wherever you read the story is plastered either above a paragraph or below a paragraph and this story is not about him he was a figure he was a character in this incident story that needs to be given very limited credit for what he did you are correct, I think. When you said earlier the things that you now get angry about, I know that my entire temperament has changed because of this. Your mum and dad, are they in Spain? Oh, they, were in, right? they were in Cyprus when he got... When he died, they were in Cyprus, so they were probably in Cyprus, distant palms, when he got shot as well. So they are now both suffering ill health and in Staffordshire. And as you said earlier, Naomi, David 
talk to me quite a lot. But the family has now experienced two awful tragedies. Yeah. Just tell people just tell people about Naomi. Oh, Naomi was my sister's Debbie's daughter, second born, beautiful, beautiful little girl, very smart, very artistic and articulated. Just everything you'd want a daughter to be. She was just coming up to her 18th birthday, living in Blackpool with a boyfriend that she decided wasn't really for her and was going to come back to Staffordshire. And we believe she had, she'd been out for the night. And unfortunately, we believe that she only took two coproximal. She had either toothache, bad head, probably too much wine. And with that and limited amount of coproximal, uh, she never woke up and unfortunately was found deceased. I know David received a call from her and he didn't return it, I believe. And that that's his moment. You know, we're, we're dealing in a lot of what-ifs in this whole story, but... Yeah, he shared that with me. Yeah, I, I didn't know that, Tony. But you don't... Yeah, you'd do anything, wouldn't you, just to be there for your family member, Naomi, David, or, or be your best mate. And unfortunately, men, mental health just... Uh, the big push is now is, are you okay? And let's talk about it. And the trouble is, mental health is still an issue because us as blokes don't want people to see... Like, we, we, we've spoke at length and I've had moments where I can't talk because I've, I've got tears and I, I, I want to be sick. Uh, but for me to express that is uh, not the norm. And until we realise that we can do that without being criticised and ridiculed and that there are services there to back up when people open this book of mental health, things that they need help with, it's a waste of time asking people to open up when you shut the door before they walk through it. When did Naomi she die? She died on the 18th of November 2002. And there would have been an inquest. Was Am I right in thinking it yeah, was Yeah, it was left as um, an open verdict. We had two, we had two inquests. When, when Naomi died, David, David took the mantle of being the family protector. And I took on... Uh, David wasn't in the police force then, but if I remember rightly. I took on the role of making sure the inquest was in my opinion, done right, and we ended up having two. <laughs> we weren't happy with the fact that they were suggesting she took an overdose. There wasn't, there was no traces of the copious amounts of tablets that you would think somebody who's taken medication and alcohol would have in their stomach. So there was just nothing there. So that's why we pushed for the open verdict, because she was happy, go lucky, ready to come home. She was coming home on the... The, two, the day after, two days after, she was due to come back home. She packed all the stuff. So we think it was just one of those unfortunate circumstances. And now they, they obviously warn people about the dangers of coproximal and alcohol. David used to make out to me that he was this brilliant sportsman. Now, I was football. 
was player of the year in 2003. It was, it was amazing. I used to be, I used to be a semi-professional footballer, you know. <laughs> Did he? Uh, there's a story there. He actually <laughs> said that. He said that to my son. The uh, huh? <laughs> we were both. We were both. I think we thought we were better than we were, but we were both goalkeepers. I played. We both got paid to play, so we both. I suppose we both could say we got some status of semi-pro. Uh, I played for Burntwood FC, new team that started out in the Southern Consolidation League. I played for Chase Town, who are a well-known local football team in Staffordshire. Briefly, that was the only game that my dad came to watch me. We played, I can't even remember who it was, Chase Town at home. And we played this team and their striker was shit off. He made me look like a right idiot. I think he passed four, packed either side of me, one underneath me and one above me head. And my dad, when I walked off the pitch, my dad said, well, you're not that good, are you? So that was my first experience of my dad coming to watch me play football. And I don't think he ever went to watch David. What I will tell you... (laughs) Dave, when I played for Burtwood, the reason why David probably got player of the year is because I got injured and then they obviously needed a goalkeeper. So he went and played under my name. So I never got injured whilst playing with Burtwood because David carried on playing, obviously looked like me. All he had to do was shout right back, right back, left back, or he soon got to know who he was playing against. The trouble was, he enjoyed it that much, Tony. He wouldn't let me go and play for him again. So I got, uh, basically, I couldn't ever get back in the team. I can't remember if you said this to me or if I have found it in a clip. I've spent a lot of time listening back to my conversations with David, but let's assume he said it, if it was you, okay. But... Before the 4th of July, 2010, if you Google David, and people do do that, Google themselves at least once, the only thing that came up was referees' reports, (laughs) and there'd been an an altercation or something where he'd... uh, I can't remember. Did he snap someone's uh, finger or he, something? Um, or? He's probably got a few stories. He 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 came to watch me play football at Shrubborough and there was a punch-up and he ended up locking somebody up from that, that match. So that was something. And I was like, David, you're off duty, man. Let it go. No, there's a crime. Somebody needs to be locked up. And then the <laughs> local police were telling him there's no, there, there was no, vic- there's no victim. So... And our David actually put him right and said, you don't need a victim for an FRA. So they were like, oh, yeah, smart. He's refereeing. Do you know what? If he had kept his opinion to what he thought about the FA, he probably could have gone all the way. Him and Paul Johnson, really good, really good referees. And they they uh, they had um, some of the, one of the first ladies that have gone into the premiership. Unfortunately for her, had them two as mentors that heard one of her games along her journey to the FA. And there was a story that I'll not recant. Yeah, Paul, long-term friend who was overseas, I think, when David was shot. Yeah, Paul Johnson, thick as thieves, then, Pe. So David said this to me. The choices I made in life 
the other option was for me to be a criminal and I would have been a bloody good one I was not to be because of the risks involved and the penalties because back then if you got caught doing stuff it was you know you you got caught and you were in the cards it's something that I have repeated when people ask me about David and I've never it, it's planted a seed and, and let it grow in my, in my head this line that if I hadn't been a cop I'd have been a criminal and for that I my mind takes the position that there is a very fine line between well there's a very f fine line that the law divides and, uh, policing in the UK is under some scrutiny with some mischievous policemen being reinvestigated but what what did he what did he really oh, mean i think there? when we were growing up tony it, the opportunities you had to work really really hard for your opportunities you weren't given things on, on a tray you didn't you didn't all sort of one day wake up and say Do you know what i've got this really good idea i'm going to start something called i think i'm going to call it google and then make billions those <laughs> things never happened and what you got to remember is like like probably you we came from a council house we came from a council estate not there's nothing wrong with it coat and fields posse lives loud and proud we i've still got friends that i grew up with we had a school that we ran in our shed with people that came so david probably saw the fact that as we were doing that school and having our mates round, and we were pretending to be in the school putting people's fingers in vices may have led into a criminal path but i say that that was just how you get somebody to respond to doing their homework david couldn't have been a criminal tony he was he was too down the line it was either right or it was wrong what he would have been was a realistic well-balanced knew where he came from policeman he like he had somebody thank him for not knocking him off for no insurance i think after he got shot some local truck that remembered David for saying, right, you're not insured. I want to see your insurance on Monday. Otherwise, he'd have lost his license. His car would have been impounded or crushed or whatever they do there. And he would have lost his family because he wouldn't have been able to provide for them. That's that's what a good cop does. They, they persecute the people that need persecuting and they look after the people that need educating and looking after. Make, we all make shit decisions. Um, and David weren't no different. Um, so, no, nah, he wouldn't have been a crook. He'd have got caught. Well, he did get caught, didn't he? Yeah, what happened he with the Cornettos? I got caught. So, he's not even a good crook. <laughs> he's a good liar. <laughs> because that was, <laughs> there was one, two, three of us went uh, down the town, decided that we wanted an ice cream. I got a Cornetto. I think David might have got a lemon popsicle or something. And Paul, the other lad, he got, anyway, they, some old tall store detective that obviously clocked us grabbed hold of me i think they grabbed hold of david david broke free and ran off and left me there going oh dear and this old lady with her hair tied up in a bun saying take that cornetto out young man or i'll take it out for you um, and that was the only time first time i got caught for shoplifting a 26 pence or whatever it was cornetta i'm confused now because i didn't want to reread 
the the book because I wanted to come at this section fresh and get spontaneous uh, stories and reactions because when we do talk about childhood etc we do see it completely differently and there's a different tone to to this episode for sure but i i have that in my head that david got done for the cornettos and it cost him no, getting no. into the police the, the reason why david didn't get in the police is a little bit more serious than a cornetto when we were kids an air rifle. You could have an air rifle, couldn't you? Air rifle. Everybody had an air rifle. And if you didn't have one, your mate had one. And it was in the toolbox or the shed and you could go and get it. So David went rabbited on 16MU, which is the rather large RAF supply base. So not an issue rabbiting. The fact that he was walking across MOD property with a firearm included the fact that that was quite a serious firearms offence. And that offence never dropped off your record. Whereas shoplifting at the age of 11 for 20 pence drops off. His didn't. And he'd forgot about that. And every time he filled his application in, he, he obviously filled it in with no convictions, never been told off, never been in trouble. And this would obviously come up and it'd be a red flag. Well, I prefer to remember the story the way that I remembered it. <laughs> but um, it, it is true that I think, would it have been the third application that he made and he yeah, did think, admit you know, it? It might have even been the fourth, Tony. I, and he I, know he was, I joined in 97. So if you go 97, he, he decided in 96, late 96, that he wanted to be a police officer. Because I came home and he'd said he told me I've applied for the police, and I just looked at him and burst out laughing and said, "Are you taking the piss? You're never going to get in the police force." I said, "Oh, PC terrible twin." I said, "You've got no chance." He said, "You're off." I said, "Don't be so stupid." I said, "Right," and this is where we had this conflict. I tell you what, if you're going for it, I'm going to have a go. Well, I I obviously tried, and for whatever rhyme or reason. Um, I must have got in when the interviewers were watching the group round and they were asleep or something. But I got in and within three months I'd got a date and he never, ever let me live that down because it took him years to get to even get past um, and accepted. And he had to sell his house, move up to the northeast. And you know what? Once he went up the northeast, Tony, uh, trying to get him back down to Staffordshire or even Australia. He, he loved the people of the North East. He thought they were real, is it canny? Real canny. He just loved them. I I can hear him saying to me that that move made his life. Yeah, no regrets. Um, obviously, before he goes, he meets Kath. Uh... I'm trying to recall the Michael Bolton story. Okay, the Michael Bolton is that, story. Is that something to do with a nightclub? <laughs> Annabelle's. Annabelle. Oh, everybody in Staffordshire who's listened to this will remember Annabelle. Me and our David were fixtures. And that <clears throat> that was when you'd get paid 50 quid and you could go out on a Thursday, Friday and a Saturday and still have a burger on a Sunday. 
David was with somebody, I think, when he met Kath, and there was a phone call where I think David was asked to choose. <laughs> Obviously, David and Kath got married because yeah, Kath was pregnant, wasn't she? She probably fell pregnant quite what quickly. made him make that decision that he, he did the right thing. Kath quite quickly caught with Ashley. And no, was Ash born in the North East? In Staffordshire. He, he probably was about, I'm trying to, he might have been six or seven by the time he went up, north, up to the North East. David came and lived with me and Angie for. Probably about six weeks before they moved up to the northeast. Took the took the truck up and went up, and he, he never looked back. Tony, he loved he loved it. I always said it was too bloody cold. And Mia obviously comes yeah, along as Mia, well. Mia, um, shining a little light in David's eye. Ashley was always Mia's. Uh, sorry, Ashley was always Kath's go-to, uh, and Mia was always David's go-to. Until I went up, and then she'd always go to me. And David, I thought, I think David didn't like that. She always favoured her uncle Darren, but times have changed. <laughs> there were the odd issues between David and Kath. <clears throat> I think definitely post the shooting, David placed extra value in Kath. David always valued uh, Kath and his family. They always came first. And like you say, when David got shot, I think the issue was that he knew he had to rely on Kath. And do you know what? She would be the only face he would remember at that particular time. If he met somebody else, he wouldn't even know what they looked like. So he was always certain that his life would be with Kath and the kids. And I think Kath just, obviously, she decided that that probably wasn't going to be the case. He did say to me in 2011 that at the time that he was shot, that they were at yeah, their happiest. Yeah, I think that... They'd, they'd have difficulties. Let's face it, we're all we're all similar. If we're not all perfect, we all make bad decisions. Like I've said before, and David did, and I, and I know Kath did, but they they stayed together. And you know what? As a family, you 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 couldn't split them. The kids were balanced, well well behaved, sought a good education. They weren't lazy. They were really really good kids. And Kath and David worked well together. Let's face it, they moved four hours from where they both lived and made it both change their careers. So they did it together. It wasn't just David. It wasn't just Kath. But I think if you look at the severity of what happened, there was always going to be something that could go wrong. And if, if it didn't go wrong before, Tony, it was going to go wrong after this. Kath has got a memory like an elephant and will remember the day that I've done something wrong, never mind what I said on the particular day. Give her a due. She's always... Not forgotten, but she'll put it back in one of them boxes. But we were really happy. When I got shot, Kath and I were as happy 
as we've been in 20 years. I think that's worth hearing because there is a lot that gets talked around this. But that is uh, yeah. David in his own And how eyes. sad that that narrative has then been changed to fit in with whatever story somebody wants to put out, be it Kath, the press, or anybody else, that they should have been left to deal with their private matters on their own. Well, the show of unity and dependency on each other was never going to be tested more than at the trial of the two accomplices, Carl Ness and Cora Wham. An incredibly draining period. David still picking pellets out of his body. The press watching and waiting a show trial as Northumbria police have to make a statement to the nation that you do not gun down a serving British police officer. And as we know, that hasn't been the only case in recent years. The ups and downs, the testing of emotions, the stress, the fatigue of the trial, and Kath and David together, we'll explore next time. Next time on the Rathband Tapes. On the Sunday after they'd shot me, in his interview, he said that they'd gone back. They'd gone to sleep in the tent because they wanted a chill out day. So remember, everybody has a story. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com and to comment on this episode, head to the Secrets of a Ghostwriter Facebook page. With thanks to Rob Jones at Ultimate Content, this is a Horny Media and Publishing production.